it's kind of a stark contrast from what we're going to be looking at tonight and someone that was a little reluctant to say those words, here am I. And his name was Saul. And um, if you'll remember, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15. If you'll remember, Samuel had brought a new era, a era of spiritual, um, not enlightenment, but of obedience. Thank you, son. My son's now the official plug-in-the-computer person when I forget, so that's a good we need that. Um, Samuel had ushered in a new era for Israel and spiritual um, obedience, and yet they weren't perfect. After a lifetime of service, ministry service, the people came to him and said, we're tired of you, we're tired of your sons, we want a king. And God told Samuel, "That's it, it's um, the pattern that they've shown ever since the beginning. And ultimately, Samuel, it's against me, not you. Um, and so don't be offended, but go. And then this was probably very humbling. Go obey those hardened, rebellious people. Go obey them, Samuel. But um, make sure they know of what they're getting into. God in his grace, he could have just given it to them. But he let them know what they were in for if they chose a king. And they stubbornly chose the king anyway. So we left and uh, God said, return to your homes and I will have in my timing, I will have a king ready. And then we just like totally shifted gears into a different scene that we entitled a day in the life of a wealthy um, Benjamite farmer. That's really kind of what it seemed. It really has, it does have a little bit of flavor of, of a chapter in Ruth or also in Esther where you really, all of a sudden, hearing all these things about God speaking to Samuel, you get to this chapter, you really don't hear much about God at all, except for the verse we're about to read. But we do get this young man, Samuel, who is the son of Kish, a wealthy farmer who had donkeys and oxen and all these things. And one of the frustrating things about living on a farm is the animals get loose. Donkeys got loose. Saul takes his servant and uh, my wife was pointing this out last week. In continuing in this narrative, notice all the detail. There really, as we continue through, and I hope we get through this chapter and on through 10, we'll see. There is more detail in this chapter than I think most of what I remember of the narratives about David, which is very interesting. There's, there must be a reason for that. And I think it's this. I think God is showing he has told his people he will do what he says, and now in detail, he is showing that he is in every aspect of this, even without his name being mentioned all the time. Um, every detail of this is being put together, has been planned by God. So all these things, um, all these coincidences that we looked at last week, Saul just happens upon after almost giving up. Dad's worried about us. A servant says, actually, we're near a town here where there's a famous man of God. They called them seers back then, the prophets. Let's go talk to him. And Saul says, well, sure. But what do you do when you talk to a man of God? Do you give him money? And the servant's like, well, yeah, I just happen to have some money here. We can give him. And that's that town, if you remember, just happened to be the one where Samuel happened to be at just the right time. And in the midst of all this, now it's like the author lets us in on the secret. Verse 15. In the midst of all these seeming coincidences, the author tells us now 
the Lord had told or revealed Samuel in his ear. It still has that flavor of, of, of God almost whispering it. Like it was a secret that Samuel only knew and that we as the readers, we're supposed to keep the, the secret too. So shh. But he revealed to Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came saying, tomorrow about this time, I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin and thou shalt anoint him to be, interesting phrase here, captain or it might be translated prince or leader over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon, and actually a note here, the Septuagint adds two words. I have looked upon the affliction of my people because their cry is come unto me. So we get a little inside baseball here about what's actually happening. Only Samuel knows the whole situation here. But God says, I'm sending the man to you. But he refers to him as a captain or a prince or a leader. Anybody, um, I don't know if you've ever looked at this before. Why doesn't he just say king? Am I making too much of a detail here? Or is there something else going on? Ever thought about that? Uh-huh. Yep, that's good. That's exactly it. In the end, God is making it clear that although... Um, Saul may rule his people. He's actually more of a prince. He's a leader. God is still king. And that's the way that it's described here. So he's reminding Samuel that he is still in control. And even in the midst of the rebellion and the rejection of his people, he has heard their cry. He has mercy on them. And he knows, even as it seems that he's allowed um, some of their enemies, the Philistines, the Ammonites, to gain in strength and to strengthen themselves, and the people are seemingly being subjective to subjected to their might, again, that God has allowed. God still in his mercy says, but at the same time, I want to deliver them, and I'm going to use Saul to do it. For I have heard the affliction of my people, and God always hears when his people are hurting. And he's ready to act. Um, he expects us to repent. But there are times God just in his grace just helps us anyway. Even when we stubbornly <clears throat> resist him. And so God has told Samuel all this. And now it's like for the rest of this chapter of narrative, we go back to the whole idea of um, God not mentioned very much. And it's almost kind of like the perspective of Saul. Saul seems to be pretty dull spiritually. So it's almost kind of like from his perspective where he doesn't know much about the Lord and the Lord is not mentioned very much throughout the rest of the chapter. But we know, we know that God is orchestrating all these events and the details in these events remind us of that too. All right. So we have a lot of details here. And 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said unto him, behold, the man whom I spake to thee of, and this same shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. There's a couple of things going on here. So it's something I have to point out. Go back to that last part of verse 17. This same shall reign over. Some of you may have a note in your Bibles that there's another um, definition or meaning of that word reign, and it is restrain my people. And it seems like there's a good possibility it could mean restrain 
which if it does, then this is a possible hint. Most, this is, um, I think this is, mo this is very likely. This is a hint that Saul's reign will be a hindrance to the nation, that it will restrain them and hinder them rather than be of help to them. It's just a hint. And we have little hints here and there that although Saul is exactly what the people want, that he's not really going to be that beneficial. He's going to actually be a hindrance to them. So Samuel, Saul gets um, up to the gate. Samuel's there, and he shows his spiritual dullness again. Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. Now here is, you could say, really the most famous man right now in all of Israel, right? It's, it's Samuel. It, it, we've been described already as all of Israel recognized God working through him. And Saul, who doesn't obviously doesn't live that far away, doesn't recognize or hasn't even ever heard of Samuel. And you just get the idea. Here is a wealthy young man who's kind of contained in his own universe, and he's not really spiritually intuitive, doesn't know Samuel at all. Can you, can you tell me where the most famous prophet in all of Israel is? And he's looking right at him, right? And Samuel being very patient, answered Saul and said, well, I'm the seer. Go up before me unto the high place, and ye shall eat with me today and tomorrow. I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart, on your mind. So, Saul, you've been told that I can um, give you the answers that you need, and so I will do that. But we also have, I'd like you to stay with me and be my honored guest stay the night with me. And, and by the way, he says in verse 20, that issue, and, and again, showing that he knows already what Saul's been going through, showing his intuitive um, abilities, of course, his relationship with God, and God's showing him these things. He says, your donkeys, the ones you were so concerned about, they were lost three days ago. Don't worry about them anymore. Set not thy mind on them, for they're found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and all thy father's house? And so Samuel gives um, more information here that was sure, surely surprising to Saul. Saul's just looking for donkeys. And Samuel says, your donkeys are found. Don't worry about that. But actually, I've got a much bigger thing to talk about with you. And that is that God has big plans for you and that you are the one that Israel has desired, or that Israel has been looking for. It's why I entitled, entitled this Saul, the king the people desired, um, directly from this context. And again, this also has a hint here that this wasn't the best choice, but he is the one that Israel has been looking for. So he, he fits that requirement. And Saul is obviously surprised by this and answered and said, uh, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? Now we probably have a little bit of false humility here, false modesty, because he, he knows that he's from a wealthy family. For, so for him to say, I'm the least of all the families in the tribe when they are obviously pretty wealthy is just his way of maybe being humble. 
But there may be some truth to this too, that Saul realizes that the Benjamite tribe, and if you read the last um, couple narratives in Judges, you will see this. The Benjamite tribe had recently been involved in great wickedness and had been a, huge, a real grief to the nation as a whole. So the Benjamite tribe had been reduced. God had, had to punish them. They'd been reduced to a very small tribe. And Saul's probably thinking here, wait a minute, recent history notwithstanding, my tribe has never been that outstanding or hasn't been recently. Samuel, are you so, so sure or, or prophet? Probably doesn't even know his name yet. Prophet, are you so sure that I'm the one? I mean, I'm from Benjamin. Remember, that's not the... That's not. Uh, the uh, most well-loved tribe right now. And Samuel says, don't worry about it. Move on. Verse 22. And he took Saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor, into a huge banquet hall there in Ramah, and made them sit in the chiefest places, which basically means he gave them a place at the head of the table. Among those that were bidden, it was about 30 guests. And Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, of which I said unto thee, set it by thee, or put it aside. And the cook took up the shoulder, so a leg of lamb here or something, and that which was upon it, and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Behold, that which is left, set it before thee, and eat. For unto this time hath it been kept for thee, since I said, I have invited the people. Now the Hebrew is a little difficult here. You could pro probably an easier translation would be something like this. See what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that ye might or that you might eat with the guests. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. So um, Saul knows that he's being invited to a religious ceremonial dinner to eat with this person that's obviously an honored figure and uh, that he will give him the help that he needs. Samuel eases Saul's mind about those donkeys. They've been found, but he gives him an indication that Saul is going to have a new future and that he's going to turn a corner here in his life. He's described again as the desire of Israel. He is the man that has the traits the nation desired. And what are the main traits that the narrative told us about? His spiritual sensitivity, his intelligence. No, remember those two, tall and handsome. Yep, that's what it is. And you're, you're, you have exactly what the nation wants. Saul, uh, he might have been insulted if he really knew what Samuel was saying there. But Saul's not convinced of this. But Samuel brings him to the meeting hall and gives him the seat of honor and basically the best cut of the meat for a meal of honor. He's obviously an honored guest here without totally realizing why yet. After that, verse 25, and when they were come down from the high place into the city, Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house. Now, the Hebrew here is a little difficult, too. It says here, and they arose early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house. Now, here's another way to describe this, that Samuel, basically, he communed with Saul, that he talked with him maybe into the evening. And then a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof. So they talked. Samuel gave Saul probably the best spot to sleep in the whole house on the roof in this climate, a nice breeze going by, you know, the night air able to cool him off. 
he is getting the premier treatment in every respect. He's probably wondering, I wonder what's going on here. And then Saul, Samuel calls to him and he says, I have, we have more to talk about saying up that I may send thee away. Well, obviously he's sending him on another journey here. And Saul arose and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel abroad or out into the street. And as they were going down to the end or the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant pass on before us. And the servant passed on, but stand thou or stop still a while that I may show or make known to thee the word of God. As they get to the outskirts of the city, Samuel says, let your servant keep going for a little bit. You and I need to have another private conversation. I'm going to tell you more about what's going on here. Um, Saul has really no idea yet still um, what he's in for in this. Uh, But notice how gracious Samuel is to him and how kind he is. Samuel doesn't have, uh, what's what's the phrase? Um, He doesn't have bad feelings or intentions. Um, Sour grapes. Samuel doesn't have sour grapes about this whole thing. He's frustrated with the people, but yet he still wants to put his best foot forward. He wants to see Saul succeed here. God has chosen him. And Samuel is being as kind to him as possible in all of this. So chapter 10, verse 1, the servant goes on. And Samuel took a vial or flask of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be, now again, not king, but captain over his inheritance? So here he breaks the news to him. Saul, whatever Saul was expecting, it wasn't this. And as he pours the oil over his head, I'm not even sure that Saul still, because of his, his the sense of spiritual dullness that he has, really knows what's going on. But then Samuel says, the Lord's anointed thee to be the leader over the nation. And here's something interesting, okay? The Septuagint at this point adds two more explan- explanation Uh, sentences to this. And I don't know if it's in your translations, but it would say something like this. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So he lets him know at this point that God, one of the one of the main reasons that he is being anointed king is to deliver the people from their enemies, just like they asked. God is basically giving his people all that they asked for, isn't he? And they're going to find out what that more and what that means later. But even in this, he's reminded, you're not king over God. God's king over you. You're the prince under him. You're the king or leader under the king of kings, the prince, the leader. So, Now Samuel is going to give Saul an agenda. And this kind of reminds me, um, we're looking looking forward to doing this maybe in um, August with our young people. I haven't done these in a while. But it's going to be something where I give our young people an agenda in different places where they have to travel to and find different things and work different things out and and find me. And they'll have instructions to do different things. Um, I've done this many times before, and it's a lot of fun. This kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Samuel says, 
here's the instruction, Saul, as you're going to go on a journey today and you're going to meet these people and this is what's going to happen to you. And this is a sign that the Lord has chosen you. All these things are going to happen. He gives Saul a very detailed agenda. Again, as we're going through this, notice all the details involved in this narrative to follow throughout the day. Saul, basically, we have described here, Saul would have four encounters with people, the last three with increasing spiritual significance. The first encounter will give evidence that Saul's original mission was over, and he's moving on to something of greater spiritual significance. Let's see what that is. Verse 2, and when thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find or meet two men by Rachel's sepulcher, her tomb, in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. Now, uh, they at that time knew exactly where that was. We're still not sure where, where Rachel's tomb was located today. But back then, they knew right where it was. It's like, you know, you tell people instead of giving them street names, you know, you go to the red barn with the white, the weather vane on the top, and then you turn to the left. And, you know, it's just kind of like, obviously, you're talking to people here who know um, the immediate area. So he's on his, his um, journey here. And what these men will say to thee, they will say unto thee, the donkeys which thou wentest to seek are found. And lo, thy father hath left the care of the donkeys and sorroweth, or he's anxious for you, saying, what shall I do for my son? So they will, um, they will affirm that that mission is done, Saul. And now you've got a more important mission. So the next significant encounter that he has is described in this way. It's going to be um, crossing paths with three men on their way to offer sacrifices, and they're going to, in the midst of that, offer him some food, some sustenance. Verse 3, Then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain or the oak of Tabor. Very specific. All these details, right? And there shall meet thee three men going up to God to Bethel, or Bethel, one carrying three kids. Now, don't think of this carrying small children under each arm. This is young goats. Okay, they're carrying young, young goats. And another carrying three loaves of bread, and another a skin, would be the right Hebrew word there, because they didn't have bottles back then, of wine. And they will greet thee, salute thee, and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. Now, again, did Samuel come up with all this as kind of a neat little treasure hunt? You know, follow this and follow this and follow that. No, this is God's details that Samuel is giving to Saul. God is in every little detail of this whole day. He's involved in all of this. And so that's a second encounter. What's the third encounter going to be? Well, Saul is going to encounter a group of prophets in the midst of worship. And they will introduce him to his most important encounter of all. Let's continue to read there. Verse 5. He, after he receives the bread and the sustenance, after that thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines, near the Philistines. And it shall come to pass, when thou art come close thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company or a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery, that's a uh, King James word for a harp, a tabaret, which is a tambourine, and a pipe. Uh, not the kind of pipe you might be thinking. It'd be a flute. 
and a harp, which here means more like a lyre, which I, I think is the rounded instrument that kind of tapers off the top of the strings. Anybody ever played one of those before? No, I think so. Anyway, they're, they're going to have all these before them. They've obviously come from worshiping the Lord, and they're continuing to worship the Lord, and they shall be prophesying. They shall be speaking the truth of the Lord that the Lord is giving them. The Holy Spirit is obviously working in these prophets and telling them what to say, and it's probably just a matter of praise and honoring the Lord with their words. And Saul will get caught up in this, and now his most important encounter as these spiritual encounters hit their height, and the Spirit of the Lord will then come upon, or really the idea is, rush upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shall be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs are come unto thee, that thou do as occasion to serve thee, basically means that phrase, do what your hand finds to do. For God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou wait or tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul, and he's turned into another man. What does that mean exactly? Are we talking about the same sort of encounter that we have today with the Holy Spirit? As far as salvation. Anyway, is, is it mean? Um, as far as what does it mean that he was changed into another man? Anybody have any, any thoughts? <coughs> given the mission sort of internally that God had given to do because he was sort of dull thinking, dull. Uh, and he wasn't really focusing on spiritual matters, but I think God has the power to overtake a person, just like God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. That was in a negative sense. I think the Spirit of God can show a man and direct him to do what he wants done. Mm. Yeah, Tom's uh, going the right direction there with what I'm referring to. I don't don't look at this because of everything that we've also we've seen about Saul. And we know kind of his future. This really doesn't seem to be describing a real heart change like what David had. This isn't describing someone that now all of a sudden, all of a sudden has a heart for God. But remember, at this time in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on whoever was going to be the leader or be used of God. And then they were given enablement to be used. Samson had the Spirit rushing on him. And we wouldn't call him a stellar example of righteousness and obedience. And yet he had the Spirit working on him. In this case, it's the same thing with Saul. The Spirit comes upon him, and probably in a way that he's totally taken aback by, he is prophesying, he's giving praises, and it may even be that he may be saying things that he doesn't even fully understand here, possibly. But the whole point is, is that this is an indication when this happens, that God is going to enable him to lead and to deliver his people. The Holy Spirit's power will be upon him. And then, that's why he said, Saul says, when these things happen, do what your hand finds to do. Do what you think is best 
or, or they had the idea of go out and serve God with all your might, maybe, for God is with thee. And then he says, but wait a minute. Here's the thing, though. Here's how our relationship's going to be and how God has established us. So you're not just going to get to do whatever you want to do. But you go down to Gilgal and you wait for me. And I will be the one that will still have um, a big part in the spiritual leadership in Israel. And you need to wait for me and not get ahead of me. And this Samuel is spelling out front, even before Saul is anointed king, what the relationship is going to be like. That's important later on when Saul gets himself into trouble. But Samuel is saying here, this doesn't mean that you are the ultimate spiritual leadership, Saul. You're going to be king. You have authority, but you still need to wait on my message from God at all times. And I'm going to offer burnt offerings, and we're going to offer peace offerings, sacrifices, and we're going to wait on God. God's going to tell me what to tell you, and then I will show thee what to do, and you'll go do it. That's the arrangement. Pretty simplistic. We'll have to see later on if Saul is able to follow those very simple instructions in his life. So this isn't spiritual change, but it's enablement for service. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And really, I still think that God gave him another heart has the idea that he enabled him for service. It doesn't tell us what kind of heart that God gave him there. Um, if it is some sort of spiritual change, it, it didn't last long. And that's why I'm real hesitant there to describe that as anything other than the spirit enabling him for service. All the signs came to pass that day. And so we're spared all that detail again. But when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company or group of prophets did meet him. And the spirit of God, exactly like Samuel said, rushed upon him and he prophesied among them. And so people still, you get the idea here that all of Israel, they don't have any idea yet who's going to be king, but they know something strange is going on with Saul, Kish's son, near the tribe of Benjamin. And word gets out, and everybody's kind of wondering, what's going on with Saul? And it came to pass when all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets. Then the people said to one another, what is this that is coming to the son of Kish? Why is Saul acting like this? He's a wealthy Benjamite farmer. Why is all of a sudden he's keeping company? He's never been concerned before with his prophets. He's never had interest in the things of God before. What's he doing there now? Is Saul also among the prophets? Seems to have the idea that people are confused. I think it kind of points to the fact that Saul had a reputation of not being very interested in spiritual things. And all of a sudden now he is. And people are wondering, What's going on? This is quite a change. And one of the same place, now one particular person answered and said, but who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, this seems to, this part here seems like they're moving into mocking, from wondering to mocking. Well, who is Saul's real father then? Because we know that Kish wouldn't be, uh, be able to have someone who would be this spiritual or, or something like that. It's kind of obscure, but it does seem like they're kind of moving into mocking at this point. When you have someone that you know that hasn't been real interested in spiritual things, and now all of a sudden 
they're taking part in spiritual things. There's a lot of confusion. There's some mocking. There's a lot going on here among the people. But nobody has understanding yet of what actually is going on, except for Saul and Samuel and, of course, the Lord. In verse 13, and when he made an end or he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, whither went ye? He goes back from um, the worship center there from prophesying. He heads home. Family comes around him. They've been worried about him. The uncle, some reason, comes out before his dad and, where have you been, Saul? And he said, well, where you sent me to go? To look for the donkeys. And when we saw that there were nowhere to be found, we came to Samuel. Now he finally recognizes Samuel's name. They're on a first name basis finally here. And Saul's uncle said, well, tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel has said unto you. Because in a small farm life community, things like this don't often happen. You meet the famous prophet of God and you want to know all the details. And as, you know, a young, maybe teenage son is ought to do, he doesn't give him very many of the details at all. Here's Uncle Watson, all the details. And Saul's just like, yeah, look, we, we, we went out and looked for the donkeys. The donkeys are back. Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys were found. But of the matter of the kingdom, whereof Samuel spake, he told him nothing. We see here then that the whole matter is still very secretive. Well, we're not going to go any further here because I do want to make sure that we have time for prayer. But Saul is going to call the, or Samuel is going to next call all the people together. And he's going to announce to them their new king. And something very interesting is going to happen in the midst of that. But in the midst of all this, I kind of want to bring this together and make a specific application I think is appropriate here. Saul here is a portrayed, and we'll see next week, is continuing to be portrayed in this account as a young man who seems spiritually dull and obtuse and unsure as to whether he is really all in, where he's really that interested in the calling of Yahweh on his life. We're going to see that next week. At the same time, even with someone like this, who's not sure if he's all in, God is um, working and he's already called and he's setting everything into place. His calling and plan are unmistakably clear in all this, even as Saul's told, trying to figure out what's going on. And even with that spiritual dullness, there's a positive side to all this, too, with Saul. And that is Saul is portrayed as a young man with a wonderful promise and wonderful resources to be used in a mighty way for God. Saul started out well. He had a lot of potential. And we're going to continue to see that. But the question is, will he reach his full potential for God? And only time is going to tell that. So particularly with our young people uh, is an application tonight I want you to make sure you think about. God has given all of you and all of our, our young people in particular a lot of talents, a lot of abilities. You guys um, are rich in, in resources in a lot of ways that the people in Bible times couldn't have even imagined. God has blessed you in multiple ways. You are starting out, even I'm just thinking of the young people even in our church, with a wonderful promise for God to use you in mighty ways. But all that potential doesn't mean that you're going to continue to be faithful throughout your whole life. That still remains to be seen. 
And it really comes back to this, do you have a heart for God? It doesn't matter all the potential that you have or that, that all of us have in one sense or another. We all have potential. Our lives aren't done yet. Are we, do we have a heart for God that is going to let him use us in the best way possible where we're submitted to his plan? Or are we just going to kind of live our lives in kind of the spiritual dullness? Well, like God wants to use me. I guess he can. And Wow, that was amazing. I guess he, he used me for that, and I never saw that coming. And But never really live up to the full potential that God has planned for us. That's a decision in your heart that each of us have to make. How sold out are you for God? We're going to see that David was sold out. But Saul... We're going to find out soon, pretty soon, with all this potential, what happens with him. So just some reminders there and encouragement for us. Give your all for God. Use all the talents and abilities and all that he's given you and use it all for him. And let him use you in a mighty way.